You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Friends, why don't we pray? We're going to read the Bible, we're going to unpack it together. Why don't we pray and ask God for his help as we do that? Gracious God, you are so good. You are awesome. You are supreme. Uh, you have spoken, and we have your word written, recorded for us, Lord. Thank you that we can explore it together today. And Father, I pray that you would encourage each of us, that you would fan the gift of faith into flame for each of us. Would you grow us to be more like Jesus? In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, big news in the streaming world this week. You may have seen that Netflix have released Harry and Meghan. Anyone watch the first installment of Harry and Meghan? We've got a few fans down the front here. That's good. Uh, well, even if you didn't watch it and you don't care at all about the royal family, this is a fascinating story for what it tells us about shifting culture in the Western world. You see, for centuries, the British monarchy has, has kept its distance. It was less a family, more an institution, and one shrouded in mystery. The public didn't know them. We didn't know what they were like. They were distant and otherworldly, and that's the way they wanted it. They were special because they weren't like us. Uh, even in the 20th and 21st century, Queen Elizabeth lived with this mantra of never complain, never explain. The idea was that you didn't give yourself away in public. You didn't speak your mind in public. You kept the distance and a little mystery. And hey, maybe it worked, right? Because when she died earlier this year, we saw how well-loved and, and well-respected she was, right? But maybe that mantra has died with her because this week might be a big turning point for the royals. Harry is the grandson of the Queen, second son to King Charles, married to actress Meghan Markle. And they felt that they were forced to quit. They had no other rule but to quit their life in the firm, to escape from the, the scrutiny and the strain of being suffocated under that blanket of mystery. And so now, who better to share their side of the story than them? And so we got the, the Netflix show, and, and so keen, in fact, is Harry to speak that next year he's releasing his book, Spare, he being the, the spare heir to his brother, William. If you like chips on shoulders, this is the book for you. It's going to be fantastic. And all of this is stirring up quite a lot of anxiety for the other royals, because what will happen 
is that the aura and the, the mystery that has surrounded them will disappear, it will come crashing down. They won't be the, the distant, otherworldly royals. They'll just be the Windsors. Another family with baggage and, and beef. It's fascinating for us, but terrifying for them because we'll see just how really human they actually are. Well, it's not quite the same. In fact, it's not the same at all with another royal figure from a very different royal line. We're in Colossians 1. Over the last three weeks, we've been mining deep for gold, verse by verse, working through this and focusing on King Jesus. I've been loving it with this richness to Jesus. And we've seen that he is otherworldly, haven't we? In verses 15, 16, 17, so far, we've seen that over and over. The context for this letter is Paul writing to the church in Colossae, and he's writing to tell them and remind them that Jesus is supreme. He's all they need. You see, there's teachers in Colossae, some of them teaching that Jesus is kind of like basics for beginners, entry-level Christianity. But get past Jesus and there's more secrets, more knowledge that will unlock more power and wonder once you leave Jesus behind. Well, Paul's reply is chapter 1, 15 to 20. Jesus is all they need. He's everything. He's blowing their minds and ours at how awesome Jesus is. He's the, the Lord of all creation. He's the one that holds it in his hands. He has aura and mystery and mystique, and he deserves it. And yet the miracle we see in our verse this morning, verse 18, is that this Jesus, he has drawn near to mere mortals like you and I. It's the same miracle we celebrate at Christmas is that this Jesus, this awesome otherworldly cosmic king has come near so that we might know him. He doesn't want there to be distance or aloofness. He wants a relationship with people. He wants to direct and shape our lives. He wants to give us hope, real, tangible, touchable hope. He wants to know us. Let's read verse 18 again so we, we're all on the same page. Colossians 1, 18. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Uh, we're going to look at four different dimensions to Jesus, all flowing from this one verse, four different angles, if you like, on his being and his doing. And I hope as we do, it stirs our affection for him. And it reminds us afresh or maybe shows us for the first time just how incredible Jesus is, how worth our worship he is. Uh, we've got four R's. If you're into taking notes, four R's. We've got his rule, the relationship, he's risen, and he's reigning. You ready? Let's go. Let's dive in. Let's think first about his rule. He is the head of the body, the church. That is a metaphor that Paul uses several times in the New Testament for different reasons. Here, the first reason he uses it is to convey that meaning of authority. We're thinking about the head of a, a company, the head of a school, the head of a country, the one who's in charge, the one who sets direction. Jesus rules. 
Paul says exactly that about Jesus in the next chapter 2, verse 10. He says, we have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He rules his body, the church. Now, the, the question for us is, how does he do that? How do we know what Jesus wants us to do? Mark this. We have it nowhere more clearly than in the Bible, in his word. Right before Jesus ascended to the, the right hand of his father, he's died and then he's risen from the, the dead. He has one last team meeting with his disciples. He gives them one final pep talk as he commissions this core team to build his church. Do you remember what he says to them in Matthew 28? We're going to read it. Matthew 28, he says, All authority on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus creates the church with these words. He sends them out, but central to its life, key for this church will be teaching and observing all that Jesus has commanded his disciples, right? Their job is to, to teach, pass on what he has taught them. And so they do, they speak and they write and God in his grace and mercy has preserved much of what they wrote that we have before us in the Bible. Ancient words, but piercingly relevant for life in the 21st century. Jesus is ruling his church by his word, his spirit, bringing it to life and enabling us to live under his word, his rule. Over the last few weeks, Guy has been calling us to live with Jesus at the center of our lives, to put him first. Right? And so we, he's teased out this idea of starting our day with Jesus, starting in prayer, opening his word, the Bible, five minutes, 10 minutes, priceless minutes spent talking to and listening to the one who made it all. Have you started your day like that this week? It might be hard. There's lots of things vying for our attention, but this is one of the ways that we can practice living under his rule, having him direct us because he shapes our attitudes day by day. He stirs our affections and reminds us of what is worthy of our worship. He is. He speaks into our relationships. He forms our, our ethical framework for life. He directs our thoughts and our words and our, our actions as we listen to his word. He, he warns us away from habits and patterns of sin. And he warms us up to worship him. Is Jesus ruling our lives? It's a question worth asking because the truth is that someone or something will always rule over us. Someone or something will always be the loudest voice that we listen to. That will be the thing that shapes and directs our lives. It could be the words of someone close to us, someone whose affections we crave. We want them to love us. We want to hear them say those words, I love you. 
Now, that might be a romance, but it could also be a, a child. It could be a parent. It could be a friend. We can be so desperate for their love that we might turn a blind eye to their bad habits. We might not pull them up on it because we're worried about not having them love us back. We might ignore when they treat us badly. We might even compromise our conscience to keep them happy. Sometimes we let those people rule our hearts and our lives. But in the end, we have to ask ourselves, are they good for us? Are they for our good? The answer isn't always yes. Maybe it's not a, a someone for you, but a something that's ruling your life. Maybe it is the unflinching drive for success. Words, therefore, of respect and honor and admiration. Those are the words we crave. They're the ones we listen to the loudest. And so our lives are ruled by a regime of work or study and professional development. Because that is the path to progress, isn't it? And progress is the path to success. And success means approval and honor and, and control. So no interest rate rise or no global pandemic or anything else can hold us back or get in our way. But when that drive rules our lives, it demands laser pointer focus, doesn't it? There's no room for anything else. And so eventually everything else, everyone else becomes baggage, slowing us down. We have to get rid of it. That might be the path to success, but does that make for healthy, happy humans? Again, the answer is not always yes. Who is ruling your life? What about Jesus? What if he rules in our lives? What if his words are the loudest we listen to? Well, he's good for us. Speak to any Christian you know, and they will tell you that Jesus has been good for them. We've heard it from John and Bev already. Jesus is at work. He's good for his people. And he wants our good. And so submitting to his rule is aligning ourselves with the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. Brian Rosner is the principal at Ridley College, Bible College here in Melbourne. He says this about the word of God and how good it is for us. Uh, the Bible knows the human condition. It knows us inside out and from every angle, soul, body, spirit, mind, and heart. It addresses our deepest desires and yearnings, our frustrations and most painful sorrows. It includes instructions for every age group, condition, and circumstance, including young and old, happy and sad, rich and poor. Its insights into modern human behavior are uncanny. God's word is good. How good is it that we can listen to the words of Jesus? We can build our lives around it. We can start with him. We can listen as he speaks true, life-giving, beautiful words to shape our lives. Jesus, friends, is the head of the body, the church. He orders and directs. He rules by his word. And he is good. 
That's the first dimension to this Jesus that we see in verse 18. There's a second, and it comes from this same metaphor, this picture of Jesus, the head of the body, the church. Now, you might have seen or heard the, the rule of Jesus as negative, right? It's a word that can be loaded with baggage. When someone rules, we might think of heavy-handed dictators springing to mind, or we might also think of ineffective Uh, irrelevant leaders in our world. And let's face it, right? Lots of the leaders that are in our heads right now probably fit one of those two molds. But Jesus is different. He's not distant or cold or self-serving like so many human rulers. No, he is the head of a body. And like your head and mine, it is connected to our body, right? He's involved. He cares. This is the second dimension that we see of Jesus. He's, he wants relationship with his church. It's a relationship focus. Verse 18 is the start of a, a second section in this poem of praise. Paul is shifting the focus from Jesus as Lord of all creation. That's what we've seen in 15, 16, 17. Now the focus is Jesus, Lord of one particular people group, a chosen people, a people he calls his own, his church. And together, the church and Jesus, they look forward to a new creation, a new order where Jesus will be in charge. You see, Christ is in an organic relationship with the church in a way that is not true for humanity generally. Though he loves humanity generally, he has poured out his spirit on his people. His very presence dwells in us if we're part of his church. His church are the ones striving to live under his rule. There's there's a different quality to that relationship. And the Bible is full of images to help us grasp how deep his affections run for us. God describes himself over and over as father. We are his children. We're known by him. He has fearfully and wonderfully made us. Jesus describes himself as mother hen longing to gather her chicks safely beneath her wings. Jesus is the bridegroom pursuing, loving, sacrificially giving himself up for his church. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. We bear fruit because he grows it in us. Jesus is the head. We are the potty. City on a hill, they're all images to evoke in us a sense of how deeply he loves us. They all speak of relationship. Now, look, did it state the obvious, right? Think about your head and your body. They're connected. And I'm no scientist, but I think I'm right in saying that we feel things physically and emotionally in our bodies, and we process those things in our heads. So we know what's going on because our heads can process and make sense of those things. So have you paused to ask yourself today how you're feeling? What's going on for you emotionally and physically and spiritually? Have you done a a check-in today? As we search for the words to describe our feelings, Jesus already knows. He knows us. There's a scene in the Gospel of John where Jesus meets a a woman at the well. There's no one else around. 
and they get talking and they, they go deep pretty quickly. And, and Jesus tells the woman that he knows her. He knows that she's had a series of marriages, five in fact. And the person she's with now is not her husband. He knows her story. She's taken aback. But he's not judgy. He's gentle. He's tender. He, he reminds her that he loves her. He's firm. He calls her out of that pattern and habit of a, a sinful life. But Jesus demonstrates for this woman he's met for the first time at the well that he knows her story and he cares. And friends, the, tr- the same is true of us. Think about that for a second. The, the ruling royalty of all creation knows you and me and cares about you and me. Social researcher Hugh Mackay, in his book, What Makes Us Tick, observes this for humans. The most important desire is the desire to be taken seriously, which he explains as the desire to be noticed, to matter, to be appreciated, to be valued, to be remembered. That is to be known. We are known by Jesus. We matter. We are appreciated. Right now, no performance needed, no parts of our lives needing hidden from him because he knows it all anyway. He knows all of us. And that is gospel gold for us, friends. If you're someone who's doubting your own self-worth, hear this truth. You are valued by the God who cast the stars into space. You are treasured by the God who filled this earth with creatures of wonder. You are so precious to him that his own son would shed his own blood and have his own body nailed to a tree, that he would die an undeserved death for you and me, that we might be reconciled to God. There is no doubting your value and worth to Jesus. Some of us might be building our sense of identity on the opinion of others. Those same people that might rule our lives can loom large in our heads here. And we might get stuck on that question. What do they really think of me? What does my parent really think of me? What does my partner really think of me? What does my boss really think of me? What does my friend really think of me? And that question can be paralyzing, can't it? Because it means that every time we have an interaction with that person, all of our value is on the line. All of our sense of self goes up and down with their opinion of us. And that's exhausting. Speaking as a people pleaser, I can tell you that is exhausting. Jesus' opinion does not change. It does not go up and down. It is constant. He loves us. We're precious to him. For some of us, life has battered our sense of identity. We might have suffered so much trouble and trauma in our lives that we don't even know who we are anymore. Brother or sister, if that is you this morning, take these words and bury them in your heart. You are a child of God, known by him. You are part of his body. He's the head. He knows you. 
He feels the pain with you. He's working for your healing and restoration. He is for you. If you're here and you haven't started or tasted this relationship with the God who knows you, I'm so glad that you're with us. So that you can hear this invitation to come and and be known by this God. His arms are open wide. He wants to have a relationship with you. Come and enjoy the wonder of being fully known. Where there's affection and security and love. Jesus is the head of his body, the church. The second dimension. To Jesus here is the relationship that he wants with us. Third dimension, or third day, he, a third R, he's risen. Uh, has anyone heard of Harry Houdini? Anyone know who I'm talking about? Hopefully some of you will. He was a Hungarian migrant to the US and in the late 1800s, early 1900s, he became probably the, the most famous escape artist of all time. There was almost nothing that he couldn't free himself from. Straight jackets, chains, ropes, handcuffs. Uh, they were easy, so he took it up a notch or three. He was buried alive. And he escaped. He was put in a coffin and submerged in water. And he escaped. Nothing, it seemed, could hold him down. There was nothing he couldn't escape from. And maybe he started to believe his own hype. Uh, Just before he died, he told his wife that he would talk to her from the other side. If anyone could escape death and its finality, well, it was Harry Houdini, right? And so after he died in 1926, his wife tried seance after seance, but heard nothing. So finally, on the 10th anniversary of his death, she decided to have one more go broadcast live on radio. And the host tried and tried to connect with Houdini, but they heard nothing. And so the host turns to Mrs. Houdini and says, what should we do? And she said this. Houdini did not come through. My last hope is gone. I do believe he cannot come back to me or anyone. It is finished. I turn out the light. Friends, even the great Harry Houdini couldn't make good on that one final promise. He couldn't escape death. Jesus made a similar promise to this one. A bit like Houdini on the night before he died. He was sharing one last meal with his friends, a meal we'll commemorate with communion a little later. And what's about to happen to Jesus is slowly dawning on the disciples. The fog is lifting and finally they're seeing that he's about to die. And so he makes this promise to them. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice And no one will take your joy from you. Friends, we mustn't underestimate how important those words are. You see, if Jesus didn't keep that promise, then we're all fools. We shouldn't be here. We're worshiping a dead man. We're wasting our time. He's a sham. He's a a charlatan. But Christianity is grounded 
on the conviction that these words are true, that Jesus kept this promise. Because if Jesus is risen from the dead, and I am convinced he is, and I know many of you are, then everything changes. Paul is convinced he is risen. Let's have a look at the next sentence in Colossians 1.18. He says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Jesus has risen from the dead. And Paul's concern here is to show the church that just as Jesus is in control of this created order, so he will be in control of the next created order, the new heavens and the new earth that he promises because he is the first one to rise from the dead. He's the firstborn, the first to do it, the beginning of that new order. And here's the amazing thing about that, building on the previous point. What happens to the head happens to the body. Just as Jesus has risen from the dead, so will his church. And that is the hope that we have in the face of death. And we won't find that hope anywhere else. As an Anglican minister, one of my roles is to conduct funerals and help families and friends grieve for the people they love and and have lost. And I've done a few, and let me tell you the difference between the funeral of someone who has died with this hope and someone who has died without this hope is the difference between night and day. There's no comparison because the Christian dies with real flesh and blood bodily hope that it's not a final goodbye for the person in the coffin. It's not the end of their existence. No, they will rise with Jesus. He is the firstborn. They, that Christian, is his brother or sister born later when he returns to call us home. And so the Christian can say and and know the certainty of these words, where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? You've got no hold on me anymore. That is the hope we hold true. And Christians, that is the hope we have to share with others. Jesus is the one we're going to sing about in Christmas carols for the next few weeks. Jesus is the one we're going to point to and, and proclaim in all of our Christmas, Christmas services here. He's the one we want to share with this city. So who are we going to invite? Who are we going to share this with? Who can we bring to one of our Christmas services that they might hear and, and sing of this great Jesus? Who can you invite to a meal in your home or a a picnic in the park so they might hear of your hope in Jesus? We have nothing better to share with other people than Jesus. He is risen. We have three dimensions down. Jesus rules, but in relationship, he has risen. So what now? How do we live now? What do we do with this? Well, the fourth angle on Jesus here is that he is reigning. Jesus reigns. Why? Because Paul tells us in everything, he might be preeminent. Uh, With the launch of Harry and Meghan's Netflix documentary, can we even call it a documentary? Entertainment show. Uh, There's kind of a 
a new wave of opinion pieces wondering whether the reign of, of the British monarchy is going to last much longer because what worth is there in having this family kept at the taxpayer's expense? What purpose, what point do they serve? The commentators debate. The reign of Jesus is not up for debate. His reign is not like the reign of Queen Elizabeth or King Charles based on the span of a lifetime that will end when he dies. No, he's risen. His reign is not like the prime ministry of Anthony Albanese, precarious, subject to the, the will of people and parties. No, his reign is now and forever and cannot be shaken. His reign is glorious and good for you and I and for this world we live in. It's beautiful how connected this whole passage is, isn't it? Jesus reigns because he is the image of the invisible God, because he is the creator, because in him all things hold together, because he is the head of his body, the church, and because he is the firstborn from the dead. He reigns because in everything he is preeminent. That word mean, means he is supreme. He surpasses all others. There are no rivals. There will be no referendums on his reign. Jesus reigns supreme forever. And so today, you and me, we're invited to live with Jesus ruling our lives, with his word directing us and us joyfully submitting to it. We're invited into a relationship with him who knows us and and whose affections for us are secure. We're invited to reach out and grab hold of the hope that he gives us. Hope in the face of death. We are invited to buy and worship and adoration of the one who is preeminent, supreme. Jesus reigns forever. We're going to share communion together in a few moments, but I want to finish with a, a prayer, an old prayer, a little prayer that I find this week in a helpful little book called Still. There it is. I commend this book to you by Dr. Catherine Thompson on Christ-centered mindfulness. This is worth a read. It's full of little tools like this prayer to help us keep Jesus at the center of our lives. We're going to pray one of the prayers in there, and it's called the Serenity prayer and it's so good because it helps us meditate on the reign of Jesus so I'm going to invite the band back up to help us with this we're meditating on the reign of Jesus because he's got this he's the one who's in control isn't he he knows where we're heading and he's the one who will take us there you see when we begin to grasp the scope of his reign, we realize that our busy minds and, and wandering hearts can rest. We can be still because he's in control. He has got this. We can have serenity. So I'm going to pray it slowly, and I'd love you to slow down and, and pray it with me. Quietly turn each line over in your heads. I'll leave space between each one, and I invite you to see this as an invitation to embrace the reign of Jesus with stillness and serenity.
So friends, will you pray with me? Gracious God, give me the grace to accept with serenity the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. God, help me to live one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time. God, help me to accept hardships as the pathway to peace. God, help me to take as Jesus did this sinful world as it is and not as I would have it. God, help me to trust that you will make all things right as I surrender to your will. God, may we be reasonably happy in this life, but supremely happy with you forever and in the next. God Almighty, hear our prayer for serenity. It's in your strong name we pray it. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.